Welcome to The Partnership, the straight-up business podcast where co-founders chat co-founders with co-founders. I'm Jennifer Bettmeyer. And I'm Melissa Duran-Connor. We know... We, what are you doing? Go ahead. <laughs> we know a thing or two about being business partners. We launched media relations agency, Jennifer Beck Communications, aka JBC, together in 2014. So each episode, we invite co-founders to share their stories about building something new from the ground up. All right. Today, we're so excited to welcome Connie Matisse, Alex Matisse, and John Vigeland, the co-founding team behind East Fork Pottery, a direct-to-consumer phenomenon with a mission to bring traditional American craft to an entirely new generation of consumers. In 2009, Connie was working at a farmer's market in North Carolina, selling cheese, my favorite thing, when she met Alex, who had just finished an apprenticeship and set out on his own to make pottery. They became a couple and in 2013 expanded their business to bring on their potter friend, John, who now serves as CFO. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Hi. Thanks so much for having So us. let's talk about cheese. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I'm like, let's I'd always rather talk about cheese and olives, maybe. <laughs> Melissa's two favorite subjects are Brooklyn and cheese. Like, yeah. whenever it comes up on the podcast, I'm like, I'm going to go on mute for 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But um, I'm excited to have you guys. We're big fans of the brand. I also am pumped because this is, I think this is the first time we've had three partners on the podcast. So this is a whole new dynamic um, that we can dive into. And I think um, our, you know, millions of listeners will get a lot out (laughs) of. (laughs) So um, I guess we always like to start from the beginning. Obviously, Connie and Alex were the beginning, right? You met at a farmer's market. Like how did, A, how did your like personal relationship form that dovetailed into let's start a business together how did you know what was the beginning like for you guys yeah i mean the beginning was Alex, take it away uh, sure the beginning was me uh finishing an apprenticeship um or three years of apprenticeship with two different potters and finding a piece of dirt outside of Asheville, north carolina and um starting out on my own as a potter. And so I met Connie shortly after moving to this land in this old um, farmhouse. And um, she didn't become involved in the capacity that she's involved in this business today for a few years. Um, But she watched the whole thing form, watched the kiln be built, helped build the kiln, um, helped out in, in many different capacities, sort of when we were just a little country pottery, but then Connie came on full time. Um, uh, I think after John had joined, um, or or maybe it was sort of in that same moment that that we all kind of formed together. But uh, we have a very different founding story than uh, the majority of other D to C brands that maybe look and feel like us from from the outside. When you started, did you you knew after your apprenticeship that you wanted to do something yourself? You wanted to create or build a brand yourself. You didn't want to go work at another brand. You like had that kind of entrepreneurial energy. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I could have told you what a brand was at that time. I wasn't thinking about brand. I was thinking about <laughs> doing my life's brand, work. Brand was not a word in our, our lexicon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I was making pottery. We were firing it in this in a large wood-burning kiln, selling it at, um, you know, small galleries and craft shows and, and things like that. Um, eventually, we did start selling it online on a little Squarespace site that I built um, with a funny developer from Helsinki. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was not about uh, growing a brand in the format that East Fork is today. It was, it was me doing like my big work of being a, a potter, um, not an artist, but. Um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Connie, and during that time, obviously you were there, right, for the ride, and you were helping him, being supportive. But you were doing your own thing as well for a, it seems like a few years before you guys decided to start maybe formalizing something. Yeah, when I met Alex, I mean, we were just on such different pages. We were about the same age. I think Alex is like a year and a half older than me, but um, 
I, I had been living in New York and, and kind of doing a little bit of this, a little bit of that, had a very different understanding of what my career path was, and then left during the financial crisis, um, somehow made myself, made my way down to working on a, a, a farm as a just farmhand, getting paid two fifty an hour in Madison County, North Carolina, um, and met Alex and um, just fell head over heels in love. I think I moved in like two weeks later. Um, and he, you know, Alex had already had like had plans, um, all laid out and had, um, drawings for the kiln that he was going to build and, um, was just so extremely focused on the thing Mm -hmm. that he knew that he was going to do something that he'd been kind of planning for, for, you know, decades and his, maybe his, his whole life had been kind of, um, thinking about, um, establishing this business and, um, and I, I was in a very different place. I was in my early twenties and, um, just deep, deep, deep in, in the, who am I? What do I, what do I want to do? How do I want to contribute? Um, you know, what is, what does it mean to be a human? Just like asking all of those big questions. Um, whereas Alex had, you know, had kind of seemed to at that moment had, have everything figured out. It's like, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this. And then the end, it's going to look like this and it'll be a legacy. Um, and pottery was not on my radar whatsoever. Like I hadn't, I, when he would kind of explain to me what it was he was planning on doing, because at that time it was all words, like nothing was there yet. It was really just a, a, a an empty field and, um, and ideas. Um, and so what Alex would try to, um, get across to me what he was, was planning on building, but until it started to come together, I really just had no concept of, um, of the, the tradition here, um, the kind of, uh, fervor with which collectors in North Carolina um, take to, um, to pottery collection, the all of the nuances and um, of, of kind of relationship between maker and form, like that was all stuff that that I kind of like learned by osmosis after um, living with Alex. Um, and it, yeah, it took me until 2015 when I when we had our first baby um, was when I, I had been kind of trying to do like a clinical mental health counseling program. I was working in bars, I was writing, I was doing a little bit of this and that, but um, but ultimately it just like, I, I saw that that thing that Alex was building felt really exciting and I wanted to figure out how to be a part of it. And I, I kind of shoved my way into, into <laughs> being a part of the business. Um, and so came, yeah, came full time in 2015 after, after John had been here for a couple of years already. Did you have reservations about working with your husband or <laughs> where oh, yeah. did it just kind of feel <laughs> so good that you just followed your instinct? I mean, I, I didn't, I, it's so hard. We, we've, Alex and I have been trying to kind of starting to go back to that, those early days and, and think about how it felt. It just felt like when John and Alex started talking about, um, the business that they could potentially create together, um, there was, there, they had so many ideas and also they, they were both kind of, you know, they weren't entirely on the same page yet about what it was going to look like and where it was going to go. We were just still in that kind of like throwing ideas at the wall and seeing how they felt. Um, and those those conversations really excited me, and I, I saw how I saw like the, the skills that Alex could bring to the table and the skills that John could bring to the table, and I was like, I, I think I could probably contribute something here too. And so I I just kind of pestered everyone enough until I <laughs> was like, I work here. Good for you. So I'd love to hear more about John and your background. So you're. I would say your first passion seems to be pottery. That's how you guys know each other, I would imagine. Um, it's rare that I know someone who can be super creative, but then also be the CFO of a company. So, so I'm really interested to hear more about kind of your path um, in this art form, but then also to East Fork specifically. Yeah, um, that's definitely come up before. And I think I've always, um, I've, I've maybe never fully understood the whole like, right brain, left brain dichotomy, or it's just like never felt. Um, I think there's part of me that wants to think that like anyone can do anything. And it's more about like what we're culturally conditioned to think that we can do. And like, and I don't adhere to that. Like there are, you know, we have aptitudes, we have uh, things we're drawn to and things that we, we don't like, but maybe part of it for me was um, I was really drawn to art and making uh, I studied art in college. Um, but when it came time to, uh, when we started stepping more into like entrepreneurial spaces and um, the need arose for kind of some sort of financial planning or analysis, it felt like this challenge of like, oh, you know, it's not expected that a creative person could do this. I want to step into this and like prove that I can do it. I can watch some YouTube vids and figure out how to do accounting. Uh, <laughs> and it, it also helps that m- both my parents had careers in like accounting and finance. And so I could kind of lean on them and, um, yeah. So I think that's how it started. It was just like, oh, um, 
I want to I want to prove that I can do this. <laughs> and was it from a very early point where you kind of had this role at the company, or in the beginning was it kind of like more of a mishmash, like the three of you were working together, or did you guys have very clearly defined roles from the get go? I mean, I remember it as kind of like a organic mishmash early on. Uh, I trace the like CFO seed to a moment when like we got a piece of mail from the North Carolina Department of Revenue saying we had to like change our sales tax filing. And I was like, I can fill out this piece of paper. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it went from there. Uh, And I think Alex early on, both Alex and Connie kind of were, would would tell you that they had very little interest in like the money stuff. And (laughs) they were looking to hand it off. And I was like, well, I, I guess... If I'm the only one here to step into it, I'll step into it. So it was embarrassing. We had like this, <laughs> this like three ring binder that I found a couple of years ago that like was our like accounting book for like where we where we kept track of the pots we made, and it was it was a sad state. <laughs> like I, I like I was trying to write down. I was like this is like a fourth grader would do this. To be honest, that's how I feel about it. Like that's why Jen and I work because she really loves the back end and like looking at our PL and all that. All I want to know is what are we making? <laughs> and who no. can I hire? Well, Melissa just wants to know yeah. like how much money can I spend? Also, yeah, yeah all what Melissa can I spend? Wants to know. I want this team member to go to LA with me for a day. You know? it's, it's um, John, John's least favorite question is, can I spend this money? Yeah. <laughs> He's yeah, like, that's exactly. not my job. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's so funny. Alex and Connie, how do you guys delineate who does what? Was that also kind of a natural thing? Yeah, it naturally, Connie gravitated towards the sales marketing brand and towards the storytelling and towards, um, you know, some of the creative elements. Um, I always loved the manufacturing, the making. um, And so I, in the early days, spearheaded, how are we going to make more of the stuff that... um, that we need to make and how do we make it in different ways? So how do we go from making something on the potter's wheel to making it on this machine that, you know, was used at the turn of the century, but is more efficient than a potter's wheel to now we're importing a piece Mm -hmm. of equipment that'll make 3000 pieces a shift, um, which is basically double what we used to make in a single year um, when we started out. So, so that's sort of always, I, I was over production John was over finance and and operations, and Connie was um, over brand marketing and sales. So we've we've interviewed partners who are married, um, you know, partner and then partnerships who are unrelated, whatnot. But again, this is a very unique situation which I we love. I'm curious what it's like being part of the founding team of Eastbork with a married couple, and do they ever gang up on you? <laughs> uh, about money they probably do i think that's like an easy answer about money maybe <laughs> i mean honestly i feel like the, the that that's just the easiest part mm. yeah i mean i don't know it's like a weird through line in my life i often find myself in this position of being like the third wheel to a marriage or a relationship in like um a work setting so in some ways it kind of just feels natural at this point um I don't know. I think like the tensions we've navigated is, is, well, I mean, for me personally, like, I think one of the question marks has always been how do I, in the context of like working together, uh, but also being friends, but then also not being married to either of them, but they're (laughs) married to each other. It's like, how do I, this relationship just feels kind of unprecedented. Like, am I Mm -hmm. supposed to be a business partner now? Am I supposed to be a friend? Am I, uh, should I give y'all distance? Should I be more, uh, you know, plugged into the the relationship like that? That to me has been the challenge. I don't think we get into a lot of like Alex and kind of ganging up on John or like maybe earlier on, like y'all would try to recruit me into like your sides in an argument or something, but I don't, <laughs> I think we're kind of like beyond that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I, that, that made, we def- I definitely tried to do some like, John, just yeah. see all of the mean things that Alex is doing and yeah. on my side about it. But yeah, yeah. We're, we're trying to not not engage in that sort of behavior yeah. anymore. And it was John was always very good at like upholding boundaries and being like, "Nope, <laughs> I will not." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I will. Yeah. 
I will not do that. And I'd be like, oh, you don't care about me. And he'd be like, I care about you. I just don't have any interest in participating in this conversation. And Well, I mean, a question about boundaries is because you guys obviously do have a personal relationship. I mean, you have a marriage and then it, it does seem like you guys are close friends and that's where the foundation was built. You know, are there any boundaries in the relationships? Do you kind of say to each other, all right, let's just go to a barbecue on Sunday and not talk about work and just be friends and talk about like, you know, our kids and life and what have you, or does kind of work bleed a little bit into everything you're doing personally, because that's almost natural. I think, I think you're, um, you're catching us at a very special moment right now, which is like why we're all kind of being like sourpusses. Um, we have, um, I, for, we've been doing business together for a long time now. And, and I think of all of the areas that we've, we've really struggled in. And there's, we, the, the patterns of the issues that we have, um, that we continue facing, there's, they're so habitualized. Like we kind of have seen patterns over and over again over the last few years. And, um, we, because we were also kind of single-handedly focused on getting this thing off the ground and, and, um, doing like, you know, three X thing growth every year over year. And, um, it was, um, it was it, it was really brutal and it and it kind of disallowed or, or deprioritized any of that that much more in, um, foundational work of um, establishing boundaries and establishing ha- healthy communication patterns and um, while we like you know there was always this like running element of like love and admiration and respect it wasn't until really in the last six months that we started really grappling with all of the ways that that all of our mal- maladaptive behaviors were showing up and like affecting deeply affecting everybody at the company and and especially ourselves and so it's been it's been really tricky to navigate and I think we're we're at a real inflection point right now where over the past six months we've like kind of laid everything out on the table we've said everything there could possibly need to be said we've said like this is the thing that you do that really hurts me in this way and this is the thing that I do that makes me feel a lot of shame and I never want to do it again like we've said all of those things and we're just kind of like sitting there with that discomfort where like it's all been said and we all know how we want to like do things differently moving forward. And it's going to take some time to like mm-hmm. to reestablish new ways of working together. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a it is like a linchpin moment right now, I feel like. So like having having acknowledged that having all all of us said like what we've been doing is not working. We can't do it anymore. Something needs to change. Um we're all aligned there. And, um, I, I think it's really just a matter of finding an ability to trust that all of us are able mm-hmm. to, um, make some, make those changes and then give us, give each other the the space and freedom to show up differently. Mm-hmm. Um, have, are there any specific, you don't have to go into it obviously, but the, anything in particular that would be a great learning for listeners in partnerships that you're like, we've decided that past, seven, we're not talking about work anymore. If we're interacting with each other, like, has there been any like one thing that you kind of put into place to just try? I, I, I don't know. You guys can, or is it more of just like, we're acknowledging it and the fact that it's out there is, is improving it on its own. I think it's so much like I, you guys can correct me if this is not how you're seeing it at all. But I, I feel like if we're looking at like fast company articles who have like a, here's like a bullet pointed, like cheat sheet of like yeah. how you guys can just like establish some boundaries and routines and like, that's going to fix everything. Like that's cute, but like that doesn't work. Like it's not, that's like, it's so surface level. And like maybe it would work for like teams that are um, working together. Like if, if the intensity of the relationships aren't, aren't, um, isn't present or like, but when it comes down to, um, because Alex and I are married, because John has had to like kind of bear witness to all of our, you know, all of our power struggles for so long now, like the only fix of it is like doing the deep, uncomfortable personal work, like with a mm-hmm. therapist, like with a lot of intention, with, mm-hmm. with, um, a lot of accountability, um, like no, no amount of like, let's turn our phones off at seven and put them in the drawer is going to fix like, um, just the, the deeper issues, the deeper stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, it, that is, it's so uncomfortable. And I think it, I think a lot of people avoid getting like, they're like, things aren't working, things aren't working. Um, and then you like kind of reach a boiling point where like, it really is not working. Now everyone's now we have to quit or now this person yeah. has to leave on really bad terms. And so like, we, we could sense that that was something that could be really real for us. And we're like, you know, if we don't throw a wrench in this right now and like completely rewrite the book and like, like, challenge all of the assumed narratives that we've all been holding and like 
lay out a new framework for doing business together, like that is the solve. And mm-hmm. that, just, that you, there's just no hack for that at all. So I'm curious, I, one, I'm like, first of all, so thankful you guys are being open and honest about this because I think a lot, and our guests have always been super transparent. We're very lucky um, because this is what people need to know and learn and realize like you have to do the work sometimes. Like it's not always just, you know, butterflies, right? So a lot of hard work has to go. Yeah. A lot of hard work goes in professionally and personally as a human to make things work, any relationship that exists. Um, so I appreciate you guys being really candid. My, but my question is, are you guys, so if someone is listening and think, and they're in a similar situation, right? I guess they would be like, okay, well, what do I do? Are you guys doing like a combo of obviously personal therapy? We are the biggest advocates for personal therapists. Um, and, but are you doing like executive coaching? Like, have you integrated some like more professional therapy? Like how, or are you really like, we're on personal journeys that we have to like go down so we can come be together and be healthy together. So we just went through this big executive transition, um, which we can, we can dive into more if you want, because there's a lot of, a lot of meat there. But, um, through that, we did a whole series of kind of different modules on, um, on helping us one, think about leadership in in deeper ways that we hadn't before, but, but also to understand our personal dynamics. And we worked with an Enneagram consultant. We worked with an intuitive astrologer. We worked with a Berkman, um, person, a Berkman assessment. Um, and, uh, we've, I've worked with, with a coach before, um, and then we do the personal therapy mm-hmm. um, for the personal stuff, but it's all so intertwined that in the personal therapy, we're talking about work and working relationships, or, or at least you know, I am, and I think Connie is. But, um, so yeah, we've, we've, we've done all of that work. I've done more professional coaching or like business coaching. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and I found it very helpful, um, very expensive. <laughs> expensive they're like so expensive. more they charge more than our our suite of lawyers does it's um, so absurd yeah i need to change professions <laughs> i know dude um, just, but I, if I you find that. someone good especially on the executive coaching side they're worth every penny i you would probably agree um i my husband has had one for the past 10 years and it's you know he can't imagine being where he is without that person because of how invaluable it's been so um I think and such a different thing than therapy too. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So much more tactical. And it's so great to have someone look at something objectively. I mean, I think that's also why we love people love therapy, right? You have an objective perspective, but I think getting that from a business perspective is even, is, is so much more valuable because it's one thing for me to talk to Jen and her to talk to me about the business back and forth, but we're so deep in it that, um, you sometimes you need that like other voice that is not looking at it with all of the layers of shit that comes with it, you know? So, um, I think that's awesome. That's great. Yeah. We've gone back and forth about whether it makes sense to like all have the same executive coach. I I think sometimes when like, when Alex was working as an executive coach and I'd be like, well, you're only giving him your side of the story and like, he doesn't know me. And like, how is he going to be able to like advise you without, you know, if he's only like, I I think it brought up a lot of fear for me that I was like somehow being like represented in a way that was, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. And, but we've, we've played around with different ideas. Um, I, I'm desperate for an executive coach right now. I, I had done a few sessions with a, a woman named Marisla Jimenez who does, um, facilitation around, uh, like liberatory frameworks and like anti-carceral philosophy. And so she doesn't typically work with for-profit businesses, but, um, she has been for me, like the, the most game-changing, um, supporter and, um, really because her, her, her work really is centered around, um, understanding how your own maladaptive behaviors can cause harm and impact and she like does not shy away from like calling you on your shit and um that's that's really what I've needed I, I feel like in certain therapeutic relationships of like people just being a cheerleader and like telling you yeah, you're doing yeah. great and supportive and like I don't need that like I customers tell me that all the time like I need someone yeah. to like look me in the eye and being like I don't believe that you showed up in the way that you just told me because that's not how you usually show up in the world tell me the truth and um that's been really helpful <laughs> yeah I was in therapy for so long since I was little and it wasn't until like about eight years ago or six years ago, I found a therapist who 
for the first time I was sitting in the chair and I said something and she looked at me and she said, bullshit. And I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> and she's yeah. like, I'm calling your bullshit. And I'm like, uh, you're supposed to make me feel good. You know, yeah, I'm paying yeah. you a lot of money to sit here and tell me that I'm doing the right thing and I'm working on myself. And she's <laughs> like, no, she's like, you're bullshitting yourself and you're sitting here lying to me. And I'm like, oh my God. And I swear it was like night and day, my whole life changed. Like she really forced me to look at some patterns in my life and look at some decisions I had made and were continuing to make that were really toxic. Um, and just like you said, when you were talking about when you did this exercise as the three of you, it's so painful. It is so painful. Like it, it hurts you inside. You feel bad about yourself and you feel bad about the relationship, but the end game is so good. You know, like you come out of it eventually on the other side and you're like, Oh, I had to go through that. I had to have these tough conversations. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's also like, there is something uh, I grew up, I grew up Catholic. I'm not Catholic, but like, there is like this absolution of sins after you've like yeah. just fully confessed and just been like, that's what happened. I did it. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not saying that like just accepting that's what happens, like cures things or heals things, but there is some element of like needing to, like, if you have caused harm because you're like, you know, like the three of us are under like really intense stress. Like we have a fast growth startup and the three of us are all like mushy, gushy, emotional people who have a lot of like, we can't just like make a decision and feel fine about it if it's one that's like not really aligned with us personally. And so that, that does cause us to like, to be so overly invested emotionally in, in, in the work that we do. Um, anyway, but to, if you, if you do find yourself repeating harmful behaviors because you're stressed out and under-resourced, like there, there is the only way to heal through that is like to, to listen to someone's story and to say that happened. I did that. I can't, I, I'm so sorry that that happened. And like, please tell me how you'd like me to show up differently next time. And I'm going to commit to that. And yeah. And so I, I find that like, that w- I was really resistant to that as like someone who, um, you know, as a very um, kind of immature leader, like was always trying to find someone else to to blame for anything that had gone wrong, um, which doesn't feel good for anybody, and certainly doesn't feel good for you when you wake up and you're like, actually, I know in the back of my head that I I did screw up. Um, anyway, so I think this year is the the like biggest lesson I've learned is just like how crucial it is to acknowledge acknowledge the ways that you can in, inadvertently cause harm and not justify it. But then everybody has to be doing that, like not just one person, like the whole team has to do that. And <laughs> and if you're under-resourced, remove yourself from the situation. 99% of the time, whatever you're doing that you think is so important can wait a day mm-hmm. or, or two hours or three hours. I yeah. Mean, yeah. A hundred percent. I think that's also like really important kind of life work is if you someone asks you to make a decision or be in a meeting and you in your gut are not feeling good like emotionally or you're stressed or you're as you said under resourced and just not in a good place the chances are the chance of you making a good decision in that meeting or not saying something that may impact someone negatively you know sometimes you're right it's just better to remove yourself from that situation until you are operating you know in a more positive way I think we move so quickly and there's like 500 meetings a day and 500 calls a day. And you're just trying to get so much done that I, sometimes I take a step back and I'm like, if I just cleared my schedule a little bit more, I'd be able to give so much more to each of the calls or each Mm -hmm. of the meetings. Mm -hmm. If I had less, as opposed to having 10 calls a day and giving like 40% to each one, you know, just to be completely honest. Um, Yeah. It's brutal. It is brutal. Yeah. Of course, like, I almost didn't come meetings. to this podcast because <laughs> I was like, I am not in a place to have a good conversation. Us too. We, it's like, we, I, not because we don't love you guys. We love this brand. And we were like, this is one of our number one gets. We want them on this podcast. But to yesterday and today, Jen and I have just been like brutalized by work a little bit. And part of it's like, we just need a freaking break. Um, but you know, we also are really good ralliers and we get it together. Um, because we also respect well, people's time. So, um, it's funny, it's funny it. that you said that. Cause like, yeah, I definitely, Alex and I had just had this conversation. We had recently had a, like had to get on a zoom call and I did at the, in advance of it, I was, I texted Alex. I was like, I am not okay. Like things are bad. Like something is going to go wrong. Like I don't go to find like Kalanapan. Like, I don't know what's going on. Um, and, but I, I, 
I thought that just like acknowledging it would be enough. But then when I got there, I was like, I immediately, I was like, what I should have done is that I couldn't do this. But it's so hard. Like there to know when you can, when you're able to just like rally and get through it and push through it. Like, I think that it's important to do that, to do that in certain moments, especially when there's like someone else relying on you, like someone mm-hmm. else who's like made a commitment, you know? Um, but I'm glad we're in the same space about it. We can just do some trauma bonding. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But I mean, right? <laughs> I also think there's this really like shitty kind of idea that as an entrepreneur, as someone who's running a small business or even a big business, like you should be go, 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 go. You know what I mean? Like I saw someone tweeted last week, like, you know, you're not working hard enough if you're not working on the weekends or, you know, something like that. That's a and terrible it's, thing to say. It's just, yeah, it's like this pressure that if, if I look at my, I'll be honest with you guys, if I look at my calendar and I see like a gap, I'll see like a two hour window. I'm kind of like, uh oh, what's wrong? You know, like, why don't I have calls? Why aren't I in meetings? Like, why? And it's it's such a kind of sick mentality because our minds need to rest and our, like, souls need to rest. And, like, it's just not healthy. And I think it's why we see such burnout at such an early age in all industries. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. specifically in this, you know, in in running a startup and all of this, it's just, it's so common. And it's, it's so sick. Yeah. I want to, I want to go back to kind of your moment in time right now in this kind of like awakening to resetting again, because I think people get so much out of this. So, mm-hmm. um, I appreciate you again being candid. Um, my question is, I is, do you think you would have hit this point? Is the pandemic the reason why you guys, this point, like this moment presented itself where you're like, we have to reset or do you think if it was like the pandemic never happened, you would be on the same wheel and and it would have taken longer to figure it out? I'm just really interested in the pandemic's effect on people and the businesses that we all love and admire. And I'm just very curious what you guys think. If, if that had a major, was it a major factor in like getting here? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that was, that's part of the weather that, that, pushed us into that that space to be honest i like i don't remember a direct like through line to really connect those things but i know without a doubt that that's that's definitely part of like the overall atmosphere of what we're we're dealing with um i mean i remember yeah. a pretty direct really? direct line i mean i might we... just be blacking it out you know <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we had pushed off of our, we, we pushed off our annual planning because we were going through the summer when we would normally do annual planning and we pushed it because we were in this pandemic and we were all just trying to, you know, keep the boat afloat. Um, and then when we tried to, we tried to rush through this annual planning process and it was just kind of a clusterfuck and it exposed a lot of the, the dysfunction that existed between us. Um, yeah, and we were all sitting on an advisory call or a board call, um, and somebody was like, "How often do you guys meet?" And we're like, "I mean, we like sync for you know thirty minutes an hour as an executive team a week." And they were like, "Are you kidding? Like, how are you getting the stuff done that you're doing? How are you getting the results you're getting when you're not even talking to each other?" And then that's sort of in my mind what kicked that off. But I I, th- I agree with John like saying. It was the weather, certainly, that let's forecast everything. Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, like it, it, the whole situation, I think, depleted our reserves that maybe we otherwise would have used to like mm-hmm. push through a thing. And we just right. didn't have like the, the emotional fortitude to like not. <laughs> <laughs> to not deal. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, yeah. John. When you, guys, when you guys started saying something needed to change, I was definitely still stuck in my like push forward mode. Like I, I think that, that for my pandemic experience was so different than so many, like I didn't feel like, I mean, I also, I, I came to the office, the office was empty. So I was like, cool, I'll just continue working. Like we had a, a um, Alex and I and our family and at the beginning of the pandemic had a, a month of truly being, you know, at home, not leaving in our, with our children. Like, and I, I would say it's the, it was the healthiest, most beautiful month of our relationship where we finally had a, a real break from the external world. And um, I think, Alex, I mean, Alex and I both, I think, have to 
so much of our life is public and so much of who we are has to exist in this public sphere. And also like we're deeply, I'm a deeply private person, which like maybe is weird to say, cause like I put some, all sorts of stuff on the internet, but I like my alone time. I like, I don't like people in my space unless I'm like hosting very specifically. Like I, I need so much more alone time than I, I have been able to access for since we started this business. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that that moment was like this, this glimpse into um, what life could feel like without the mm-hmm. pressure of this business and, and really understanding how, how deeply um, our, our growth at work was impacting our marriage. And mm-hmm. it was really scary and sad um, at that time. And I, and I remember like when the world started to open up again um, and people were like kind of going back to work, I was just in this like huge, like, no, I'm not ready. Like I, I don't, everyone, so it, then I went right back into like just so fast, like needing to, you know, double, like work twice as hard because now everything felt so much more complicated, you know, having to completely change all of our selling systems. And so there wasn't this like ability to, to rest, um, you know, like everyone like baking sourdough bread and stuff. I'm like, cool, cool story for you. Like, I don't, I I don't do that. Um, (laughs) and that started bringing resentment of like, Hey, how am I, how I somehow like gotten myself into this career where I, I can't watch a movie. I can't go on a walk. I earn like, what am I doing to contribute to that feeling of like, go, 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 urgency, 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 urgency. So I, 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 for me, like that, all of those things that came up during the pandemic were part of like my big wake up call of like, whoa, like something in my life needs to radically change or like, I'm going to, I and everyone I love is not going to be okay. I just so related to everything you just said, by the way, like every Melissa and I, the entire pandemic were like, who the fuck is making sourdough bread? Like <laughs> between children at home and a business, it's like, I'm lucky, you know, Melissa and I, we were saying the other day to our assistant, like, can you just make sure that when you do our schedules, you leave like just 10 minutes for us to eat just 10 minutes. Yeah. So we can just like set aside that time it's to scarf so something down or the toxic, whole day goes. So and I'm like, it's three o'clock and it is, it's so sick, but I mean, to be honest, and I've I've said it on this podcast before, the pandemic was really trying for our agency the first few months. You know, I mean, if you look at brands and we were primarily with, you know, venture backed startups, the first thing that you pull in a pandemic is an external agency. So we really had like a three month period where we were sitting down saying like, we've had all this success, but like now what the hell do we do? We have all these people to pay and, you know, PR is certainly not a priority right now. And and luckily we've bounced back, but we had to work, you know, five times as hard mm-hmm. during the, that time to retain our business. And it was hard as hell. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, I, I don't know, for me, the last, only in the last month, I, like, as someone who's like very controlling, who like con- t- wants to control every single environment I find myself in, I had depleted myself so much that it was really just like a Jesus take the wheel. Like I am like, I'm out. I can't like, there's not one out fiber in my body left to be able to contribute. And that's, that's where I'm just like, okay, if we're going to, we have to do this thing. Like we have it, we owe it to our stakeholders. We owe it to our employees. How can we make time for this deep work that like really can help us establish a new way of relating to each other and and our work? Because this, this whole capitalist rat race urgency do, 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 do is, it's just, not good. It's not good for humans. And it's certainly not good for like long-term business health. Right. Well, let's talk about East Fork really quickly. <laughs> specifically, <laughs> um, because it's a brand we love. I mean, it's a brand so many people love. Can you tell us a little bit about what is going on over the next three, six months that people should be keeping an eye out? Do you have any launches or anything you want us to be shouting from the rooftops that's on the horizon so we can make sure people are paying attention? Um, yeah, lots have happened. Um, I think before what's coming up next, like we, the, the big things that just happened, um, I think are, are worth shouting about one, obviously the executive transition, just like restructuring our, our leadership team and all that work. I mean, I, it, it doesn't maybe seem like flashy on paper, but like it was, it was intense. And I, one day I would love to kind of like, uh, write something or like make a roadmap of all the work that we did and like share that out. Cause I, I do think it ended up being like really helpful and impactful. Um, and I wish that there was like more tools available like where you don't have to like hire a business consultant to come in and, and do that step-by-step process for you. Um, and then um, we, in the last few weeks, have gotten B Corp certified, which is huge. Um, That's huge. Huge. Awesome. Um, John, John took the lead on that one. It's been uh, two years in the making. Um, it was, yeah, a real labor of love, but that feels exciting. We also got climate neutral certified. 
like two weeks before that. I mean, to anyone listening, these are big deals that like yeah. <laughs> a lot of our brands have been struggling with for years. So congratulations on both of those things. Thank you. Yeah, we've we've been busy. Um, we also um, raised our minimum wage to $20 an hour, which felt like a, a major Amazing. accomplishment, something that Alex has wanted to, has really been pushing for for a long time. And, and I think John and I were, were more geared toward making like taking that slow and steady approach. And that's actually one of the things that was like absolutely a product of the pandemic because once once people started struggling and like, you know, spouses were losing work and um, child cares were closing and like people who, you know, we, we thought we were paying good money, like in and you know, industry standard, the the um, minimum wage in North Carolina is still the federal federal minimum wage, seven dollars and fifteen cents mm. an hour or whatever. And um it's it's abysmal. And so um we thought we were paying well, we were paying $17 an hour. Um, but we were still finding that employees couldn't get their cars fixed. They couldn't pay their cell phone right. bills at Asheville. So, so rapidly gentrifying and, and cost of living here is just, it's just disgusting. So our people couldn't find places to live that weren't 45 minutes an hour away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so John kind of came in and was like, you know what, screw it. I know what I've said before. I know I said that this incremental approach made sense, but like now's the time let's do it. And, um, we got that figured out and, and pushed over the finish line. And I think was a, a huge, um, huge positive impact for company culture and um I'm especially sure. since like we, I, I, and we just for context probably. for people like we the majority of the people that work for east work work in the manufacturing mm-hmm. uh you know work on mm-hmm. the floor and so that that's where that 20 dollars an hour yeah. um comes in and, and as well um we it's we're not just like in an office obviously mm-hmm. um no, yeah, that's amazing. Buying, th- buying things from Portugal. Yeah, yeah that's a probably a good thing to differentiate too. Is just like talking about the company because um, th- we get lumped in a lot with like with other GDCs, like homeware companies. But like we are a, a fully vertically integrated. Mm-hmm. Like we we make everything. We do all of our product research in house. Like our factory is right there, and that, that brings up all sorts of interesting um, different like cultural issues to work work with. Anyway, so that was a huge deal. Um, Felt really good. Um, did uh, just really amped up our our support services for customer for um, our our employees. Um, started really kind of digging into like um, the difference between HR and therapy, and like how do we get people get in contact with uh, with people who can um, provide support outside of our capabilities, mm-hmm. and like kind of establishing our, our boundaries is what we could uh, for between employer and employee um, in a way that felt really clear and really loving and really direct, so that there was never this like. East Fork can't do this thing. And we're like, well, no, we, we can't do that thing, but we can link you up to this person who can do that thing. Right. Um, so that was really helpful. So that, that's the kind of the cultural stuff that's been happening in the, in the spring. And then um, looking forward um, next few months, lots of um, more fun, exciting product launches happening where um, we are kicking off our collaboration with Momofuku again, which was um, a huge hit in Q4. It's so, it's so cool. It. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. It sold out way too quick. Um, we knew it was going to sell out, but like it, the um, David Chang posted that like we didn't like we didn't know if he was going to be able to post. Like they couldn't commit to it unless it involved all these lawyers, um, and so they're like he might he'll probably post though. And so the day before launch at eleven thirty, he posted like fifteen stories, and like so the stuff was sold out. That's so awesome! It was, yeah, it was people fun. were mad, mad, yeah. mad. They were so they were mad. Yeah. I can't. I just that's another thing I'm like letting go of this year, and like I can't. I just don't care anymore if people are mad because something's all Listen, off. we do like, PR. Someone's always going to be pissed. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Like, always. And by the way, it's a good pissed, right? Like you made a great product and people want it. That's a good thing. Most of them still come back and want to buy more pots. Um, so yeah, two colors are launching um, in just a couple weeks. Um, Peachy Keen and Orchard and then farther afield, we're bringing back a um, an old crowd favorite called Harvest Moon. That's a gorgeous, gorgeous um, mustard yellow that we made for the first time in 2017. So very few people actually have it. So that'll be fun. And we have two more colors coming out in the winter that are top secret. We have a platter coming out. Um, that's going to be really exciting. Um, so yeah, starting to add products. Um, Really doubling down on our on our initiatives um, that are intended to support our team members, um, and then um, two more fundraisers for um, for Asheville um, area organizers. So one with one with an amazing group called CoThink, um, and um, I don't think I have our our Q4 partner lined up yet, but um, yeah, continuing to just just invest in Asheville um, because yeah, this town needs that. a lot of a lot of investment. And your website, as a reminder to everyone, is eastfork.com, right? Eastfork.com, that's right. And I swear, if you need to get a gift for anyone, it is the best place. You'll end up going to get one gift for one person, and then you'll get like 17 things for other people. Because (laughs) 
I also love like that you guys worked with Pineapple Collaborate. Like there's such fun other brands that kind of weave their way through it. And it's mm-hmm. it's all just so beautiful. It's really unexpected too. Yeah. Um, and I will say like the branding is so beautiful. Like when you look at so many other brands right now that all look the same, there's something so authentic about your branding. And it just, it, the website's just really beautiful. And it still has, I mean, I'm, that's why I'm shocked to hear you have a hundred people because when you go on the website, it still feels so intimate. Like mm-hmm. you really feel like you're buying something that Alex just made. You know what I mean? Like it, you still have that yeah. family feel, which I think is really hard to maintain as you scale as a company. Mm-hmm. Well, that's also because, I mean, Connie, how big is your marketing team? <laughs> More, I'm just bragging. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, we, we 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 are large, but we're also small. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like especially we have that people, side of the business, like it's it's crazy. That's why I was like saying that, like I really messed up early on because I am I find myself now with uh, no director of marketing because I didn't hire somebody before I moved into the new role. I have a brand manager who's been with me for a long time who's been having to do like so much stuff that she had no interest in doing. It was not like yeah. it was not on her job description. She's leaving next month. Um, and I, yeah, I have no, I, our marketing team is a literal zero person team. We have a creative team. Like we do all of our <laughs> photography, videography, graphic design in house, <clears throat> but it is like a, everybody is just like trying their best. And so I, I'm looking at the next six months and being like, I have to launch an entirely brand new sales marketing, creative company from scratch because like yeah. the, the goals that we have for, I, I just like wildly overestimated my <clears throat> ability to continue working 80 hour weeks and just like doing everything and, and yeah and now i'm like i i won't i can't so what's next but that feel too that you get on there is because we do it ourselves and we yeah. do it in-house and we do everything the hard way like you know <laughs> Every, yeah. everything we, we struggle through it and and we do it really intensely with a lot of and and you see that and it flows through and that's what people see it does I was having an absolute nervous breakdown one day. I was like, I can't do it. I'm so busy. I'm so weeded. And and John just looked at me and he was like, have you ever thought about doing things just not very good? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? No. <laughs> yeah. Connie, I, I like feel like you're, I'm very similar to you, but um, <laughs> so the way that we finish this is uh, we, throughout the week, we put out to like our Instagram audience to ask questions to you guys. So we have a few questions and, you know, anyone can answer this, just jump in. Um, how have you gone about incorporating regional materials in a way that feels authentic to you, particularly as the brand has scaled? That's from Fiona. That's a great question. I mean, this is something we've struggled with for a long time, just because in the beginning, uh, the clay, I mean, the clay continues to be a very important thing, but from the very beginning, it was, we we were mixing local clays in with clays that were more refined and we were digging clays and making glazes out of things. And the material quality was, was, was really important and it continues to be important. But as you scale, you start to realize you need, well, you need, you need like supply chain. That was never something we really thought about, um, can I get this material for the next 10 or 15 years in the quantities that we need to get it? And um, so we try to get the majority of our material from the Southeast and the majority of the materials uh, in the, in, in the clay is from the Southeast. Um, so we continue to do that, but we, we struggle a lot. I mean, we have a seconds rate right now that's 30%, um, which is, is high, uh, really high. Um, because we are trying to retain like the iron spotting in the clay that's not like a fake thing um that's the clay actually uh iron in the clay being drawn to the surface and and leaving that that quality Mm -hmm. so we're really we're struggling a lot we were talking about this today in our executive sync with um how you balance the material quality with the needs of um of scale Mm -hmm. and of all these other things it's there's a lot there's a lot to wrestle through i bet i bet um, we have another one. This one's from Kelly. I actually really like this question. Um, she goes, I love ceramics, but I don't have a ton of disposable income to spend on building out a collection. What advice would you give to people like me who want to support your business, but don't know where to start? 
Yeah, I would say, um, so there's a couple options. One is um, we sell seconds on our website. Um, and those seconds are hardly second. Like we we have a very um, top-notch QC department who does not let anything slip. And so you might get an occasional like super wonky pot in seconds, but a lot of them are, are really beautiful functional pots that you're going to love and there's not going to be something you're like, that's bugging you about it. So we put seconds online. Um, uh, on a daily basis, weekly basis. Um, and we have this really fun program that, um, to, in order to allow, um, access into our seconds collection, you have to, have to make a, an, any amount donation to our community partner of that quarter. Um, so it's a, an easy way to kind of educate people on the, um, the need for not just like once a year giving, but like making a habit of like seeking out the, the work that's being done in your area and then as a person in that area actually investing in it yourself rather than your you know your city council trying to invest mm-hmm. in it um so that's how one way um and then also just like really starting from like we have so many our, our demographic base is, is really interesting like we don't have one really clear audience and we have on instagram we have a very clear audience but like the people who actually come and make purchases are, are all over the place we have customers who are 14 years old and customers who are in their 90s and um and everyone in between and um so i always i'm super encouraged and like just so so delighted and tickled to see you know 16 17 18 year olds buying one mug and um, in a color that they love and then like putting away a little bit of money every single year to buy one more piece and so like once you have a good understanding of like your eating habits and if you're a person who entertains or just likes to be alone like looking at and seeing like what is that one special piece i can bring home that can add a lot of value and then maybe next year you buy another one or maybe you tell your mom to like make a birth a registry for you and like share it with her friends and you can just like registries are always a fun way to you don't have to have a wedding to have a registry i think um, <laughs> we have lots of people who have, have birthday registries yeah um, so yeah just taking it taking it one step Tana at a time i was gonna start a divorce registry <laughs> No, I actually think it's the smartest idea. I'm still going to do it. I just have to build it out. <laughs> yeah. That is funny. It's going to be great. Here are all the things that he got in the divorce. So I need <laughs> you, my friends, to help rally around me and get me. Isn't it genius? Like, I think it, it, no, is, it, it really is. I always thought that Zola should have a divorce section because I honestly feel like a lot of people need support and you know, during that time, even more, mm-hmm. especially, yeah, especially when like, you're making all of your registry selections, like in the context of a partnership, when you're just like having to like, you know, no one really is getting what they want, you know, and like, right. if yeah. you're just making a divorce registry, you're like, all right, I'm setting up my house exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Also, there's like an emotional layer to the stuff you had as a couple. And so it's nice to start fresh. I totally. say this because I'm at the age now where I have like multiple friends getting divorced and it's like really hard to watch them go through this. And if there was a yeah. place to go and support them, you know, I think I actually think yeah. it's a great idea. Thank you, Jenny. I agree. <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks guys. Mm-hmm.